what I wanted to speak with you today was actually about hymnography. Um, this being the Feast of the Meeting, we have embedded in the readings uh, one of the oldest Christian hymns, uh, the, the Song of Simeon. Uh, and, and so I wanted to reflect with you today about on this great feast um, uh, with, with, through a, um, a, a, well, a particular hymn one, one that we sang last night uh, and, and in the process to also reflect a bit on Orthodox hymnography. Um, if you've been Orthodox for a while, as I think most people here have, uh, you will, uh, and if you have any experience of other Christian hymnography, you might notice that Orthodox hymnography, uh, and I would suggest also ancient Christian hymnography, is a little different from some of the modern hymns that, that you get in, say, the Protestant church where I grew up. Um, it is, uh, first and foremost, chanted. Uh, that is to say, there is music, uh, but the music is a chant. Uh, it is there to uh, help to beautify and, and enable the choir to project the hymn so that it can be heard. It is, it is certainly designed to be beautiful, but it is not by, generally by design in terms of its actual musical quality, emotive beyond what, it, what the, the, those basic emotions that we as human beings always get in the presence of beauty. That is to say, it is not, the music is not what controls our emotions in our hymnography. Rather, it is the words. The music being chant is actually there in service of and in support of the words that are being chanted. So it is the words of the hymns that are, uh, that, that as we're thinking about orthodox hymnography, that need to be our focus. And the specific hymn I wanted to share with you today was one we, we sang last night. If you, if you want to learn more about Orthodox hymnography, I highly recommend you come to the Vesper services because that's where you get most of the Orthodox hymnography that, I mean, obviously we get lots, lots of it here in, 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 in uh, liturgy, but in, when it comes to the various, the church's reflections on the feasts, which are mostly done in the hymns that we sing, uh, you get most of those, uh, um, most of that hymn, hymnographic goodness in the Vespers service. Uh, so uh, last night in Vespers, uh, we, the choir sang um, a hymn by John the Monk, which goes, Let the gate of heaven be open today, for the unoriginate word of the Father has made a beginning in time without forsaking his divinity. As a babe, 40 days old, of his own will, he is brought by the virgin, his mother, as an offering in the temple of the law. The elder receives him in his arms, crying as a servant to his master, let me depart, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Glory to you, O Lord, for you have come into the world to save mankind. I should also say, of course, uh, in, in, in sort of backing up for context a little bit uh, into the ancient heritage of our faith, uh, that 
Orthodox Christian hymnography, Christian hymnography in general, uh, uh, um, is based originally on Jewish hymnography. Uh, we have Jewish roots. Uh, and so a lot of our hymnography is actually just using the Psalms, the Jewish hymn book. Uh, and, and, uh, and a lot of our, the, the patterns in our, our hymnography reflect that. So in this hymn, it begins, let the gate of heaven be opened today for the unoriginate word of the Father has made a beginning in time without forsaking his divinity. Let's start with the first phrase, let the gate of heaven be opened today. What we are reflecting on in our hymns is primarily the way of salvation that God has made for us. And in this reflection on the Feast of the Meeting, as uh, the, the, the sort of the image is of Christ entering into the temple, that image of a gate opening up uh, becomes in this hymn an image of heaven being opened up for us. Because what we are meditating on, what we are celebrating, what we are reveling in is that God is opening up heaven to us. And everything that we reflect on, and especially the great feasts, are, uh, uh, is a reflection on that eternal reality that God is extending to us, that, that, that welcome that he is extending to us, the gates of heaven. Let them be open today. Why? There's a four there. Um, for the unoriginate word of the Father has made a beginning in time without forsaking his divinity. Here we have something that uh, is, I'm not sure if it's peculiar to Orthodox hymnography, but it certainly is visible in full force in our hymnography. That is paradox. Orthodox hymns delight in paradox, in these apparent contradictions. Here we have, entering into the temple of the living God, the unoriginate word of the Father, who is making a beginning of in time. So unoriginate is without beginning, eternal, timeless. But here we see... <coughs> As the infant Christ is being brought into the temple, he is making a beginning in time. In fact, his, his, the, the, the moment at which his parents brought him into the temple was specifically a time-bound moment. Every firstborn child, every child that opened the womb, was to be brought into the temple. Especially, uh, the, and the male child uh, at 40 days was brought into the temple to be redeemed. This is, of course, uh, going all the way back to the Passover when the children of Israel in captivity in Egypt waiting for deliverance uh, um, got the word from Moses 
that God was going to bring upon the Egyptians the plague of the firstborn, but they themselves could be spared, would be spared, if they followed the directions that God was giving them, which was to say to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the lintel and the door frames, interestingly and essentially in the sign of a cross, um, and to, uh, and, and to eat the Passover uh, in haste, be, being ready to go. Uh, and, and, and when the angel of destruction, of death, came and saw the blood on the door frames, he would pass over that house. And so on that day so many uh, millennia ago, uh, which the children of Israel were still commemorating and still do commemorate, um, the, 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 the angel of death came and passed over the houses of the children of Israel, but in the houses of the Egyptians, the firstborn in every single family, from the lowest right up to the household of Pharaoh, was found dead. And so the Israelites were in commemoration of this to remember that they received their firstborn sons as a blessing from God, as a gift from God, that God had not taken them away. And, and in acknowledgement of that blessing, in acknowledgement of that gift, the, the firstborn was considered sacred and was to be redeemed by a sacrifice. So, and this was to happen at 40 days. So, here we have the one for whom time does not matter in the least, the unoriginate word of the Father, making a beginning in time, being bound by time. And 40 days into his existence as a human being, he's brought into the temple. As a babe, 40 days old, of his own will, he is brought by the virgin, his mother, as an offering into the temple of the law. Here we have uh, the, what, is, what is, again, so typical of, of Orthodox hymnography. On the one hand, we have the historic event, which is being remembered. Here, of course, it's the Christ child being brought as a babe, 40 days old, into the temple. Um, but at the same time, as there's this reflection on the historical human reality of the event, there is also reflection on the divine reality behind the event. So in this case, a babe doesn't have any choice in the matter. When a baby is, is brought into wherever it goes by the parents or by another person, it's not their will. But in this case, even as he is being brought into the temple by his mother, by her choice and his father's choice, it's his will that they do so. It has been his will from the beginning of this law. He is the lawgiver. He is the word by which the law was made known to the children of Israel. It's his will that he be brought into the temple at this point, even as he is a 40 
six-day-old infant human being, helpless, being carried in the arms of his mother. Of his own will, he is brought by the virgin, his mother. Again, this delight in paradox. A mother is, by definition, not a virgin. But in this case, by the grace, supernatural grace and uh, uh, a witness of God, it was a virgin who brought forth a son, according to the word of the prophet, fulfilling it in its most maximal form. He is brought by the virgin, his mother, as an offering into the temple of the law. Not only in orthodox hymnography, but also in, or in orthodox iconography, everything is cruciform. Everything hinges on the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. So here, I mean, if, if you want to be technical about it, they did bring a couple of turtle doves. <laughs> that was the sacrifice. That was the offering. But that, that's not what the hymn is focusing on. The hymn brings our attention to the fact that Christ was born to die. He was from the very beginning an offering. He is, even at this early point in his life, he is the offering. And he is being brought as the offering into the temple of the law. The elder receives him in his arms, crying as a servant to his master, let me depart, for my eyes have seen your salvation. It's beautiful here. We have a hymn embedded within a hymn. Uh, the, uh, and, and he cries as a servant to his master, because of course, that's what characterizes Simeon the elder. He has lived a life of service. He looks only to his master, and he has been given the gift by the Holy Spirit uh, of knowledge that he will, be, he will see the Christ, the anointed one, before he dies. And so he says now, his hymn now is, let me depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And then, of course, it ends with a doxology, with glory. Glory to you, O Lord, for you have come into the world to save mankind. So this is just one orthodox hymn, which, as I say, it, it obviously is about the feast that we are uh, celebrating this day. <coughs> it delights in paradox. There's a reason for that, because at the heart of our existence as human beings, as created beings, there is a paradox. On the one hand, we have this awareness of God. There must be someone, something greater than ourselves. He must exist. We know this. And to the extent that he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, in the law, in the prophets, in Christ, in his holy ones, the saints, we know him. We know God. We know, for example, that God is love. 
But as soon as we say that, as soon as we make that cataphatic theological statement, we have to complement it with an apophatic theological statement, one where we say we actually don't know. God is love. But do I know what love is? Really? I may have some slight grasp of what love is, but do I really know what love is? Do I live a life defined solely and exclusively by love? Is my love perfect, unsullied by selfishness, unflawed? And of course the answer is no. And so, as soon as we say something about God, we have to unsay it, acknowledging our limitation. That's why paradox is at the heart of Orthodox hymnography, this delight in these apparent contradictions, because on the one hand, we know, and on the other hand, what little we know reveals to us that there is so much that we don't know, so much that we have yet to learn. The hymnography contrasts, on the one hand, the basic, essential, historical human reality. And on the other hand, it presents us with the divine reality. That on the one hand, on, in human terms, we don't know. Things seem to be random. We seem to be helpless, carried along like infants. But on the other hand, God is at work in all things for our good. And his will is there, controlling and working in and through all things, even in and through what we experience as evil. He works even in that for our salvation, to bring about our good because he is love. And so this, this, this essential contrast, is, which we see in our hymnography, is also what we experience in our lives. And finally, everything comes down to doxa, worship, glorification of the one who made us, who died for us, who rose that we might participate in his new life, who united himself to our humanity, that it might be brought up and united with him in his divinity. And what we do here is not anal analytical. It is not slice and dice logic. It is adoration. Because at the very foundation of our identity as human beings, we are not homo sapiens. We are, as Father Shmemen has put it, homo adorans. We are the adoring ones. That is what, in love, we come to be. Because the, lo the lover does not analyze 
his beloved or her beloved. The lover basks in the presence of his beloved or her beloved. There's nothing that is less conducive to love than logical analysis. The essence of love is adoration, is reveling in the beauty, reveling in the goodness, and, and, and giving glory to that, an expression to that in hymns, in prayer, and in our life. That we might, in our hymnography, in our prayers, and by our very lives, give glory to him who is worthy of all glory, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages.